So if you have a high quality sleep or you have poor quality sleep, then it's the poor quality sleep that really uh, messes with your, your blood sugar control when you eat breakfast the next morning. The other feature um, is something called sleep midpoint. And what that means is that, um, you know, if I go to bed at 10 o'clock at night, I wake up at six o'clock in the morning, my midpoint halfway through the night is, is 2 a.m., right? Um, so the later your sleep midpoint, uh, the worse your blood glucose will be uh, when you have breakfast the next morning. That is Professor Paul Franks. And you guys are listening to the Epic Table Podcast. Happy Thanksgiving or Friendsgiving, wherever you are in the world. It is that week, particularly in America, actually, where it starts to slow down for a few days. Uh, I know the Epic Table team and I have been very hectic given we had a big shoot with Centre, we had a big shoot with Breville, uh, so we're looking for a little day or two off. Uh, but everyone, I hope you have been enjoying the content we've been putting out on Simple How To's, personal favourite, three biggest mistakes when cooking a turkey. I had people hit me up regarding plant-based Thanksgiving and honestly, you are doing a plant-based Thanksgiving, generally speaking, if you just removed your main source of protein in that one. So like your main hero dish, but the turkey or whatever it is. So I know a lot of the sides can include butters and maybe some dairy. So maybe switch some of those out to be your cashew-based uh, creams or uh, use olive oil instead of the butter to help cook off what you are doing. But you just, be, just note, Thanksgiving is a time to enjoy with your friends and family. And people ask me, how do I make it healthier? I'm like, honestly, the whole point of my philosophy around food is that you can enjoy Thanksgiving for what it is. And you have your traditions of family recipes that you should be enjoyed no matter what they are. One of the personal favorites I've heard lately was a grandmother's awesome traditional recipes passed down from generation to generation. So happened to be a, uh, a stuffing that was pre-bought out of a particular brand's uh, you know, package. But that was a laughing matter, not going to lie. But my point is, team... If Thanksgiving is a time with your friends and family, be it that. Don't stress about what you're eating. If that's like including the times of trying to lose weight, look, honestly, it should be a time you just relax, enjoy all the good things. Yes, that is me saying that's the pumpkin pie, the chocolate fudge, whatever it is. And for all of those who are not celebrating Thanksgiving this year, whether it be from Australia, the, uh, the UK or Europe in general... Just take this time to know that maybe you can have a Thanksgiving of your own of just the same philosophy. Eat whatever you want on that day. Just bring it out there. But for those of you who are looking to eat more plants or have a plant-based Thanksgiving, simply all you realize is that most of the sides are veg-heavy. Hero an eggplant. Hero that cauliflower. Make a butternut squash. Super epic. Head to danchurchill.com to get all your recipe inspiration. Subtle plug there. But yes, it is actually a lot easier than we think because we typically are using a lot of vegetables already. So once again, from the Epic Table team and myself, happy Thanksgiving to you all. This week, team, we have Professor Paul Franks on the show. And I met Paul a few weeks ago as I was able to moderate a discussion around sleep. Uh, he's involved with a new sleep study to come out that uh, refers to obesity and diabetes and maybe some factors that are involved between the two. Um, and it was around Zoe. So uh, as you guys may know, I work with Zoe. Paul has been an advisor for Zoe for some time. Um, so I'm really excited to get him on today, purely because in that moderation, in that discussion, it was just so cool to bring up a lot of the topics that I know so well that you, the community of the Epic Table, are just so huge on. Bit of a backstory on Professor Paul Franks himself. So he, firstly, he's an elite athlete. Like he is uh, someone you're about to hear. He was a 
doing endurance work at a young age. Uh, I'm talking very young, like around 11 or 12 years old. It's crazy. Did his first, uh, you know, I think half Ironman at a very young age too. But the man is someone who can actually live and breathe the studies that he's involved with. So he does a lot of research. He's, his work's known in the circles of epidemiology and prevention of obesity, type 2 diabetes, and cardiovascular diseases, uh, obviously that revolving around diet and lifestyle. He's done a lot of work in the gene <clears throat> and environment interactions, so how the environment actually relate to obesity, type 2 diabetes, and cardiovascular disease as well. So what I'm excited is we go into a lot of discussions around understanding some of these principles. We also talk about that study, the sleep study. We had a little brief introduction to that. Uh, But overall, I think this is just a great topic to understand a lot of the research that goes into finding out how these conclusion summaries come into action. Specifically, his work around diabetes is super well known. I know we've had the gentleman from Mastering Diabetes on, and we've also had Team Scherzley on. Obviously, the work around Alzheimer's is epic, and there's been a huge correlation between Alzheimer's disease and uh, diabetes. So, in the circles of the Epic Table community, we're bringing it back to you in so many different ways, which is awesome. Strap on in for this one, guys. It is a really cool understanding. You know, his work, his research. It is epic. I'm really excited to have this sleep study that you guys are about to learn more about come out and be published very shortly as well. And just note, team, Zoe is one of the amazing companies I get to work with, and obviously Paul does as well, where we're truly trying to continue to add research to understanding the best things that are for you to consume. You, you know, obviously, personalized nutrition is massive to us. And the idea around the program is you can actually find out what you're deficient in and what you should be doing for you. We've talked about this for so long where you have to listen to your gut. We now have the means to do so. You get a kit that tests your blood glucose, your fat glucose, and of course, your stool sample, yes, will be there for your gut microbiome. So you can actually know what good bugs and bad bugs you have. So head to joinzoe.com and then use Dan10 when you go into the checkout. And honestly, this is a massive game changer. This is one of those things where you guys, I want to eat better. I want to find the right foods that are for me. Yes, you can now do that with this Zoe kit. It is epic. Go Dan10 at joinzoe.com. And we'll send you out an awesome testy kit. You get your results. And then after that, you get to hang out with some of the recipes that I love to provide you with. One more thing, team. A lot of you are asking me about vitamin D as particularly Northern Hemisphere heads into that place that is known as winter. Yes, we are not going to get as much natural vitamin D. So you're asking me what's the best place to do. Now, obviously, still try and get outside. Not going to lie. The uh, Despite how... You know, the winter is, it is still good to get outside. Other than that, a D3 supplement is what you want. Now, if you can get somewhere around a 1,000 international units per day, it's ideal. So when you're looking at whatever vitamin D3 supplement you are taking, just simply look at the packaging or whatever it has on it and just make sure it says 1,000 IU. That's international units. That's what you want to be looking at for your daily intake. Just something around that. That is honestly... Between the ages of 17 and 70, that's pretty, uh, you know, realistically bang on. So when you get the supplement, as I said, a thousand IU is what you need. You also need to make sure it has vitamin D3. Vitamin D3 is what you want. It's more bioavailable for the human body. And if you want to get that for free, Athletic Greens has a pretty baller thing going on right now where you can head to athleticgreens.com forward slash epic. And with that, not only do you get the monthly pouch, 
delivered to you along with five free travel packs, but you also get a year's supply of that vitamin D3, which includes that 1,000 international units of vitamin D3 per day delivered to you for free. So all you need to do is head to athleticgreens.com forward slash epic to get that vitamin D3 along with the awesome daily needs of the 75 vitamins and minerals that I have had for the last six years of my life. Awesome. Now, with that all being said, get your vitamin D3, whatever way you want, and let's listen to this episode of the Epitale Podcast with Professor Paul Franks. Professor Paul Franks, welcome to the Epitale Podcast, my man. Hi, Dan. Great to be here. Mate, you, uh, you and I got connected uh, by way of Zoe, effectively, when I was fortunate to mediate a, uh, a wonderful discussion between yourself and a couple other researchers and, and people in the actually one was in the sleep space. But as a result of that discussion, you and I just, I, I feel could chat for hours, particularly in the work that you do in the research and, and the work around precision nutrition, mate. So um, thank you for your time today. Yeah, no, that's super cool. And I, th- I you know, I think we um, touched on a few interesting th- uh, points last time. And I, I think one of, one of the, real sort of overlapping passions for you and me is, is how do you how do you get people to um, sort of ladder up in terms of their uh, general sort of lifestyle behaviors how do you get them to understand that actually you can eat healthily and really enjoy your food and, and you can you can do other things with your life and, and that will really increase uh, the, the sense of enjoyment that you get out of your life and exercise is, is one part of that sleeping well is another and those sort of three key pillars all kind of pour into ultimately better mental well-being, and I think if, if, if you know the conversations that you and I have um, somehow shed a little bit more light on these things for people, then that'd be fantastic. That's absolutely it, mate. I'm actually fascinated to hear how someone who's I think we just we talked about this earlier, and one thing I find very fascinating about yourself is a lot of the work that you research actually you almost participate in. So you're you're a bit of an endurance. I'm going to call you an athlete. I know you wouldn't want to call yourself an athlete, but you are an athlete. Uh, so you you know you've you've done some pretty strong feats, um, but a lot of the work you look around as well is in, in, also in the performance space is um, looking at the cells and what happens at them during through that energy cycle right so like if you're now so at least it's the same thing for me when someone talks to me about food and applying it through nutrition it's something i live and breathe it right so it's really cool to see a researcher in that space as well mate do you find that interesting for yourself yeah i mean i you know um i i, I certainly have had a, a sort of lifelong passion for ultra sport i i I, I, I did I did my first 50k event when I was 11 years old actually like I mean you wouldn't be allowed to do that do that 50k at 11 yeah yeah and I was running half marathons a couple of years later and, and you know competitively so so I started really early I did my first Ironman when I was 21 so so I so I've had like a um, you know a whole bunch of sort of uh, these super exciting experiences with with ultra endurance sport um and we'll come back to that in a minute. But one of the things that, that sort of uh, occurred to me um, early in my in my sort of uh, you know my university education, I'd gone to a I'd been on the national triathlon team, so I'd been pretty good. I'd podium at national championships, been to the Europeans and stuff like that. And I got into this special college in London that that was really for elite athletes, and there were some fantastic uh, people there. You know, Olympic gold medalists, uh, world record holders. I mean, really 
small group of really fantastic athletes. And and my undergraduate degree was really all about how do you you know how do you improve uh, the physiology um, of of human performance. And I, I found that fascinating. And it was really, I you know, I guess a, a sort of self centered endeavor in that sense that I, I just wanted to understand better how I could perform well in these ultra endurance events. But by the end of it, I started to understand that actually there's there's this really kind of small subgroup of a human population that do that kind of stuff. And then there's a whole bunch of other people, you know, literally hundreds of millions of people um, whose energy metabolism goes wrong. And, and, and I started thinking about that and I, I grew a little bit of a conscience about it. And over the next couple of years, I started to uh, become much more interested in, in diseases like type 2 diabetes, which is sort of the you know the, the mirror image of of uh, ultra endurance uh, performance where your metabolism works exceptionally well if you're good at it um to people whose metabolism is kind of broken down and doesn't function well and and then i went on i did my phd on type 2 diabetes and have continued over the last 20 years to to study diabetes so so i've had both ends you know interest in both ends of this this spectrum and i've i've done a lot of reflecting over the years through my own engagement in Ironman triathlons and ultramarathons and things like that about how, how do we get human metabolism to work better because if we can understand that maybe we can help people whose metabolism metabolism has gone wrong Matt, that's huge i have a lot of just respect for the fact that your parents allowing you to run at such a young age over such a long distance um and, and that that's epic in itself but a hundred percent i there's so many I think physiology, I'm really interested to know that, that side of it uh, initially, but physiology to me is so fascinating. Like looking at the human body, looking at the different systems in place, seeing how we can Im- like really grasp the potential of you know, our personal um, individual self at whatever, you know, whether it be a sport or just daily living activity. That, that's so fascinating to me. Um, and I mean, the work that you've done, you've been to, so I'm just trying to, I want to create some context here, mate. So you, you've been to a couple of universities when I say a couple, I think at least four that I'm aware of. Um, there's, uh, is, it's pronounced Brunel, isn't it? Brunel university. Yeah. So, so, that, so that's where I actually, when I, um, when I started my undergraduate degree, it was, it was this, uh, college that kind of got, um, uh, taken into Brunel University, but that's right. So I ended up getting my undergraduate from Brunel in London. Um, I, I, I uh, went on to Exeter University, which is in, in the southwest of England. Um, and then uh, I, and then I ended up in Cambridge, and I did two degrees in Cambridge, uh, my third and fourth degrees. Um, the first one was, was a master's degree in, in epidemiology and biostatistics, which is epidemiology is really public health, I guess you'd say. Um, but then for my PhD, I, I, I did hum- studied human genetics and particularly the interaction between our DNA variation and how we live, our lifestyle um, in relation to diabetes and obesity and things like that. So, so I had this sort of wonderful kind of road trip over 10 years in the end um, that took me from um, this kind of small college for elite athletes studying human physiology and, and, and performance physiology um, right through uh, to, to this more sort of medical discipline um, where, where I was studying at, at Cambridge University Hospital, Adam Brooks Hospital, uh, to try and understand you know, type 2 diabetes and, and obesity and cardiovascular disease from a genetic and the lifestyle perspective. Yeah, and this is the... This is the big thing that I love. I really, this is the focusing for me, looking at genetics versus lifestyle. And we've discussed this a lot on the podcast, how 
a lot of times we see in research that whilst you're you know provided with a certain code that you cannot uh, unfortunately go back on that's the dna code you're provided but it takes certain lifestyle factors to activate certain genes that maybe lead to some of these chronic diseases that we do know about. And I feel a lot of this is in the research that I've probably read that's your work or partly your work. So it's, it's, it's really exciting to see. So you've been huge in the world of prevention of obesity, type 2 diabetes and CVD in terms of the epidemiology around that. You've obviously looked at a lot of gene work as well. Um, you're, you're doing a paper you know, you're about to finish a paper um, around the factors in association with sleep, which is, um, we can briefly touch on that, but I know that uh, that's that's coming out shortly, which would be really exciting as well. But what I'm excited to, you know, I guess really initially dive into, mate, is I would love to hear at a base level this concept that we just kind of briefly touched on, genes versus the lifestyle aspect. And just to set the tone, my audience are pretty well versed now in understanding that, um, as I said, we, we have established our genes, but there are lifestyle things that do take place that activate them. But I'd love to get someone who is not a chef to kind of go even further <laughs> into this world, if you will. So Paul, mate, I know that's a very loaded question, but, um, mate, through, through the years, and I'm going to come back to, this is like a, a two part question, but through the years, mate, what, what are some of the biggest things that your research has found, uh, in, in this area? Yeah, so it's the, I, you know, I, I, I love talking about this concept of gene environment interaction or gene lifestyle interactions. And the reason I think that's a fascinating topic is because uh, so often it's said that it's a question of nature or nurture, right? One or the other. You have to choose between the two. Is this disease, is this trait a consequence of nature or nurture? But the reality is there is, there is no phenotype, and a phenotype is essentially how we um, express our genetic effects. We, you know, so our hair color, our height, uh, how much adiposity, how much body fat we have, our blood glucose levels. These are all phenotypes. These are outward expressions of our physiology and biochemistry. There is nothing that we have that is not an interaction between the environment and the genome. Um, so it is never one or the other. Um, now, of course, uh, certainly um, people inherit genetic defects that may mean with very high certainty they're likely to, um, you know, to, to develop the disease manifestation, uh, their so-called monogenic diseases. But even those diseases require uh, substrate, they require fuel for those diseases, and that comes from the environment. So, so we should never really think about it as being nature or nurture. And, and I know it's said all the time it's nature or nurture, but that's not correct biologically. Um, so we, we need to think of this more in, in the context that genes load the gun uh, and the environment pulls the trigger. Um, so most times for most diseases, and certainly diseases like heart disease and diabetes and obesity, these are not um, monogenic diseases. And so even if you have a family history of these diseases, which tends to suggest that, that you may also carry um, a lot of genetic variants that may predispose you to those diseases, you still have a choice. You, you can still control the disease. And, and, and I worked, when I left Cambridge in 2003, I went out to the US and worked for the National Institutes of Health, the US government essentially. Um, but I, I worked in a very, very special place in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, and this is a, um, an American Indian hospital. It's a small hospital, but it's where much of the seminal research on diabetes has come from. It's really been an incredible um, community of, of uh, Pima Indians and Navajo Indians 
who have participated in these research studies and have taught the world a lot about the disease of diabetes. And the reason that they're studied extensively is because they have the world's highest recorded prevalence of diabetes. About half of them will develop diabetes in their life course, which if you compare that to European populations, it's usually less than one in 10. So so they have this terrible burden of disease. Um, and But interestingly, if you went back 100 years or so, 120 years, and you look at the photographs of, of the Pima Indian men, they were these incredibly athletic looking guys, really lean, uh, and they were known for running and fighting and, and real warriors. Um, but there was an environmental change, and the change was um, imposed by the US government. The, the, the damming of the Colorado River led to essentially it screwed up their farming practices, and, and, and that changed their lifestyle. And with that change in lifestyle, they de- developed obesity and diabetes at alarming rates. And so that's one of the most sort of classic examples of a gene-environment interaction um, in cardiometabolic disease. And I found that really fascinating that, that, that this population clearly has this underlying genetic burden, but there are circumstances where that genetic burden is not allowed to play out. Now, there's a, there's a really nice piece of research that, that um, we did a few years ago, uh, which is to take, uh, there's, there's a gene called FTO, the fat mass and obesity associated gene. And that gene is, is, the, is the gene that harbors the, the strongest genetic signal for what we, what we would call common obesity, obesity in the general population. Uh, and it turns out that, that that gene interacts with lots of different lifestyle factors, um, how much uh, sugar sweetened beverages you consume, uh, how physically active you are, how much time you spend sedentary watching TV. There's lots of research now showing that, that there's this, these interactions. And indeed, the work that we published in 2011 was done about, I think it was a quarter of a million people, really huge study. It was the biggest study of its kind. And it was the first really uh, convincing example of a gene lifestyle interaction for, for, for obesity. And, and in that, that study, as, as with the Pima Indians, um, there are lots of opportunities where um, really living and, and of course, I, I don't want to uh, to minimize the burden um, that, that, that uh, some of these Native American tribes face. Um, but by intervening very aggressively with lifestyle, healthy lifestyle behaviors, you can really minimize that genetic burden. So, so that I find incredibly uh, uh, positive. You know, it's something that that to know that even even if you carry a very high genetic burden disease, most of these. these diseases or the burden can be offset by by modifying your lifestyle and i think that message is sometimes lost when we talk about nature or nurture um, we have to understand it's an interaction wow <laughs> that's great mate I, I this is the thing for me dude like i look at i look at the indigenous australians as well i look at a lot of um i, I guess where we can still track a lot of history with certain cultures and I think we recently had a gentleman by the name of Dr. Stephen Lynn on the podcast. And he was talking about how they looked at some of these, these traditional cultures and tribes that over the years have done so much work, um, you know, looking after their traditions that once they get to these points of either industrialization or Western society, there's been a dramatic change in their overall health. Um, he, he saw it in like their dental dental history and then obviously has an effect on their like gut microbiome and then obviously the the brain as well and right here you're talking about it at a generic uh, or not generic a specific level around the studies that you're looking at and this is what you know, going back to that nature versus nurture argument 
how do like if we apply this to us today where we grew up in a society that is you know like i didn't grow up in i grew up in you know i guess the 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 more modern right i'm so as did you so does that mean if we were to change our lifestyle now would that would that affect it even more like or or is it like the current lifestyle we're in something we're already born into and so we do you, do you get my question? I'm saying like we weren't born into a society yeah. where we're remote and doing very traditional things where we're eating, you know, farming the land, et cetera. So does that mean when we're born into this society, it's different? Well, so um, yes and no. Um, so the yes part is that, um, you, you know, we're, we're all metabolically programmed uh, that, you know, this is um, a process which involves what's called epigenetics, which is, changes in the chemical features of the dna so you you started um, the podcast by explaining that that your nuclear dna the the genetic variation that is in all of our cells that doesn't change from from when you're conceived uh, to when to when you're gone right so that stays the same essentially unchanged throughout the life course but there are modifications on top of the dna um, chemical modifications and, and that's called epigenetics and so the epigenetic um, features of the DNA um, are programmed. And a lot of that programming goes on when we're a fetus in, in our mother's uh, womb. And so the, the mother's uh, behavior and the mother's health has an impact on our health and how we're programmed across the life course. And this is, this is research. Again, a, a, much of the sort of really sort of seminal work came out of, of the research with, with Pima and Navajo Indians. But it, what it showed is that if you have a mother who goes into pregnancy with diabetes um, or a mother who develops uh, diabetes during pregnancy, so-called gestational diabetes, um, then that has an impact on the risk of diabetes. Once that child is born, it's more likely to to develop diabetes. And that's probably because uh, the the epigenome has been programmed in a way where where essentially the metabolic homeostasis is already dysfunctional right at the beginning of, of the life course. And that's yeah, that's a real, <laughs> a real burden, and, and the burden that, that populations where you have cycles of generations of, of obesity and diabetes, it, it tends to feed forwards in that way, which is it's very challenging to to deal with. But but on the other hand, um, there are still there's still an impact that can be had with interventions later in life, and, and even in you know even in people who are already in the in the middle of their life, uh, it's clear that weight loss is a tremendously powerful. Um, metabolic therapeutic um, we don't we often don't think of of nutrition and exercise as medicine but it is it's incredibly powerful medicine and one of the reasons it's so powerful is because it's a, a whole body uh, medicinal right it impacts all of the most of the cells in the body whereas if you take a if you take a, a, a pharmacological medication, it tends to target specific organs or cells. So, so diet and exercise have really ubiquitous effects um, throughout the body, and that's one of the reasons why they can be so powerful. Do you find, with that research, like do you? This is I'm always interested in this because do you then all of a sudden? It's probably a bit of a sidebar conversation, but this is just what's going through my head. When you come across these things and findings, do you then all become super analytical in your everyday life of the things you can and can't do? Like, I mean that very straightforward. Like, all of a sudden you hear it's best not do this and to reduce this. And a lot of the stuff is like, you know, everyday means. But like, you know, we hear about, um, 
we hear about the effects obviously around the different trimester cycles and how there's a you know a leading cause of chronic disease if certain actions are taken at certain periods of time all those kind of things now obviously there's a lot of information around that we're getting pretty good at it but even yourself do you find yourself like being very analytical about some of the lifestyle choices you're making and get concerned over based on the research you're doing I think they, uh, yeah, I, I certainly think a lot about it and I, I would be foolish if I didn't, right? I mean, I've, I've been given the gift of, of education, first of mm-hmm. all. So I have a very advanced education in this topic and I've worked in, in this discipline for a long time and, I, and, I've, and I've had the opportunity to work with you know, really the world's very, very best uh, scientists on this topic. So if I ignored that, uh, I would be a fool, right? So, so, so you're right that I certainly pay attention to it. And I I live a lifestyle which is pragmatic, right? Mm-hmm. I, I understand that uh, I'm, I'm not a monk, right? I, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I need to live my life, right? I travel and if I travel, it's not always easy to eat the food I'd like to eat and it's not sure. always easy to sleep as well as I'd like to or exercise as much as I'd like to. Um, but, but of course, it affects the way I live. But, but, the, but the real, the, the, sort of the, 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 the major impact and, and I guess the major source of anxiety, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners will relate to this, is actually our kids, right? So I have three kids, mm. um, 10, uh, 13 and, and 16 years old. And, and I would love them to make the right <laughs> lifestyle choices. <laughs> but it doesn't really help if I try to explain the scientific rationale for it. They do what they you know, ultimately enjoy doing. And that's one of the, that's one of the traps Western societies are in, right? That we're, we're confronted with these incredibly palatable foods. Um, and, uh, you know, we're encouraged to, to, uh, to um, use our screens a lot. Um, and, and actually there's, there's also a lot of things that interrupt sleep, um, you know, particularly in cities. So, so we, we've, we've engineered or, or hum, humanity has engineered societies that actually tend to make it incredibly hard to, um, you know, to subscribe to these healthy lifestyles. And I noticed that when, when the opportunity arises for me to take my kids um, out into nature, uh, that's when they really seem to come alive. They don't crave for it. They don't beg me to take them camping and trekking and stuff. But when I can drag them out and I get them into the middle of nature, they really light up. And I think, I think that's that's the thing, right? So, so um, the anxiety comes from knowing what I think is best for them and not necessarily being able to, uh, you know, to to convince them to do that. Um, for me, it's it's obviously easier because I do what I choose to do to a large extent. But I think with kids, it's, that's where the major challenge is. Yeah, no, I can understand that. I can only imagine it's. Um... I guess it's like someone in the health space and then they're, you know, specifically around trying to remove refined sugar from people's lives and then they have their kids who go to birthday parties and you don't want them to like not enjoy that, you know, and be that, you know, I guess parent who's so stickler for things that don't enjoy some aspect of life at some capacity. So kind of understand the balance there is pretty crucial. So we've kind of touched on, you know, the, the foundations of genes, foundations of epidemiology. Um, you did touch on genotype versus phenotype, and I always refer to this as like the physical characteristics, as you noted as well. So I'm really excited you, you, you touched on that. I'm really um, – I want to kind of move into – I know we kind of started to tease the idea and talking a little bit more about the food. And the reason um, – I've got to be very careful how I position this question because I feel like there's an understanding of – food now uh, at least we've talked about it remarkably on this show we talk about cutting out refined sugars we talk about eating whole foods you know um eating probably less proteins from animal sources as best as possible um or if you're going to have them of quality we you know 
organic versus non-organic. Um, so I feel like that, that base information is out there. What are you seeing outside of that that is of particular interest to you and in your research um, or even if it is any of that stuff in there that you think we should be just double downing on that you're just like, this is, this is the thing, <laughs> this is it? Yeah, so so I, I you know I, I I think this is probably a segue in, into talking about precision nutrition, but let, let let's take that in a minute or so. Sure. So so certainly, uh, if you you know if you look at standard nutritional guidelines, they're evidence based guidelines, but mm. they're based on evidence that um, is not you know it's not perfect. Uh, it's very difficult actually to measure. Uh, what people eat in in human populations, uh, unless you lock them in in a uh, clinical research facility. So sure. so people generally sort of report in questionnaires and, and diaries what they eat, and people don't always record report very accurately, or it's hard to characterise um, the food. So so the research is okay, um, and certainly standard nutritional guidelines, um, you know, do have a a, a you know a positive um, impact on on the health of societies on average. Um, I, you know, I wouldn't dispute that. On the other hand, if you look at the the really big clinical trials that have been done that have taken those standard nutritional guidelines, and you look at what the really long term impact is of, of adhering to those types of lifestyle recommendations, um, unfortunately, the really long term impact um, is not visible. Um, so there's a, a study that's just come out. Um, from the Diabetes Prevention Program Outcome Study. This is one of the largest and certainly the longest-term um, lifestyle intervention program that's been conducted to date. It's out of the US. And that paper published a couple of weeks ago in, in Diabetes Care showed that um, if you look at mortality rates um, in these people who were randomized to either this intensive lifestyle intervention that was based on nutritional guidelines or just um, you know, uh, sort of standard advice about how to live well, um, unfortunately, the mortality rates were no better um, with the intensive lifestyle intervention. So that worries me because um, if, if that's the best that we've got, if that's the best of standard nutritional guidelines, then not only should we be preventing diabetes, which is what the study was initially planned for, um, but we should also be minimizing deaths from cardiovascular disease and cancer and things like that. And that's, that's not what the study showed. So, th so then it sort of begs the question, well, okay, if that's not good enough, um, what would be better? What might be better? And that's what sort of brings us into the discussion around precision nutrition. And you touched on, on Zoe at the beginning of this discussion. I've, I've consulted with Zoe since they started uh, about four years ago. Uh, it's the world's largest health data science company, and they run really big clinical trials, really deep phenotype clinical trials, very exciting um, scientific company uh, health science company um, and the idea um, that is being pursued there and i have to say by by other companies too and, and by academics and, and clinicians it's not it's not just so but the idea is that maybe we can collect enough detailed information in individuals and if we analyze that information really intelligently we use something called machine learning which is a more complex statistical procedure than has been traditionally used for this type of stuff if we if we can really intelligently analyze the data and those data are of really high quality and and great detail then maybe we can predict uh, better than we could before what the right food is for you and me and other people rather than having just the the general recommendation which is right for mr or mrs average and of course mr or mrs average doesn't really exist right that's an amalgamation of the population so 
So that's the idea with precision nutrition. And what that research has shown, um, and we've had some really fantastic papers published in, in the Nature Journals, which um, for anyone who's familiar with science, one of the Nature Journals are the top journals, um, has shown that actually, yes, you can predict pretty well what is the right kind of food uh, for an individual if they are focused on controlling their blood sugar levels and their blood fat levels. So that's super exciting. Uh, there have been others, uh, other research groups who have published similar work um, recently too, particularly in people who already have diabetes, showing that you can help people control their diabetes by making these intelligent decisions about the foods that they eat. So I think that that is such a good news story um, that even um, today, just a few years after the sort of evolution of this idea of precision nutrition, we're already at a point where we can do considerably better than, than the, the best existing evidence for standard nutritional guidelines. So, so it makes me wonder, you know, in 10 years time, where will we be? Will we, will we really be stopping diabetes in its tracks, stopping people from getting heart disease? and helping people who are struggling with their body weight. I, I really believe that's likely to be the case in 10 years' time. I think we'll have a huge impact on, on these cardiometabolic diseases. Yeah, so you're referring to, this is great, you're referring to finding specific means to each individual to eradicate the idea of any potential chronic disease. You know, your, your highlighted diabetes, obviously prevention rather than cure would be the best way to it, obviously. Question before we move on to precision nutrition. This kind of came about as you were talking, and you talked about this earlier, studying and doing research on food and nutrition is very tough because in order to get a true understanding, the, the timeline uh, yeah, has to be pretty significant. The study has to be continued. And therefore, um, you know, some people may be putting involved, getting involved, the, uh, the study may not actually see the ROI based on the, the time and, and length of the study. But specifically on studies in general, my question is, because there is so many for and against of, you know, I think the biggest one we talk about at the time is plants versus no plants, um, also minimal, so plants versus eating animal products. We see this constantly as an argument where you have people out there claiming that grains are bad for you. Then you have people out there saying that you should be plant-based. And then you have, I know, people claiming there's another study that says this, that, and the other. Now, what I want to do is help people listening in to trying to make their own informed decision. And the reason why, how I want to do this is you and I be very, uh, let's, let's be Switzerland on this, if you will. But could you kind of explain some of the key things to look for in food research as like alarm bells? Because like, you know, there's common ones. It's like, you know, having food in their raw state, for example, during the research versus combined with other ingredients and, you know, uncooked versus cooked. They're the kind of things that I talk about um, and I've seen in, in the work that obviously does have an effect on whether it be anti-nutrients or these, these factors that have an effect on the actual absorption rates. But, you know, not, to, not for me to go too far forward with it. Are there, are there any key things that listeners should be aware of when they get receive a study and they see the thing like, this prevents cancer um, and it's an association with, you know, some sort of diet plan? Are there things that they should look into when they're, you know, highlighting that just to be clear that it is a well-documented study. Yeah, I mean, it, it is, of course, a minefield, right? And it has, you know, sort of um, diet science, if you want to call it, nutritional science, has mm -hmm. been a, um, a treacherous area for a long time because there's 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 a lot of pseudoscience um, yeah. and, and, and even the, um, the science that has come out of uh, some of the best institutes in the world is often 
predicated on um, you know pretty weak data. I, I explained um, a couple of minutes ago that it's very hard to really to measure what people eat, and so even even the top institutes. I'm an adjunct professor at the Harvard School of Public Health in the Department of Nutrition. It's one of the but it's probably the top institution in the world for nutrition research. Um, but even there, a lot of the data is this self-reported and, and quite weak data. So I think that's been a huge challenge, even for the most skilled nutritional scientists. So, so, so that's at the, uh, the you know the, the pinnacle of, of nutritional science. And then, of course, downstream from that, you've got a lot of pseudoscience and a lot of kind of uh, conspiracy theory about <laughs> about food and, and so it makes it very difficult i think for people to you know to know what what's what wears up and wears down right so 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 i have a lot of sympathy um for the challenges there but if you were going to you know just take some sort of foundational truths right the things that that if you if, you know if you generally adhere to these principles you'll probably do okay um certainly uh you know Leaning away from heavily processed foods, it doesn't matter whether it's uh, it's meat or or it's vegetable or dairy. Just you know, try to avoid heavily processed foods. That would be the first thing I'd say. So going going for more raw form foods. Um, I you know there are there are lots of strong arguments for for going towards a plant based diet. Um, health being one, but environmental impact being another. You know the uh, the the uh, Greenhouse, greenhouse gas emissions from animal farming are, you know, orders of magnitude uh, higher than for, for uh, plant-based farming. So, so there's a real issue for the environment. Um, but of course, there's, there's also a real issue for health, particularly when uh, we're talking about industrially farmed animals. I don't, I don't have such an issue at all with wild with game. You know, I think wild meat very different story there um, but of course it's not as accessible as uh, um, as as, uh, as industrially farmed animals so so you know leaning into plant-based diets uh, i've been i've been a vegetarian you know for you know best part of 30 years i guess so so i i you know I ha- that's that's been my you know my my guess thought that that that's the health a sensible thing to do uh for my health for the environment for other reasons but so, so that would be the you know the, the next key thing, um, but but I think you know ultimately um, I, you know it's kind of the opposite of precision nutrition, but it but it is everything in moderation, and you also have to enjoy, you know, you have to have joy in your life, right? So, so so it's not to say that it has to be completely binary, and I think we you know, we do live in an era where where we're encouraged to think in in these very polemic ways where it's one thing or another but but if you have the self control then then of course a, a little bit of what you like even if it isn't um, it doesn't match up to these these sort of high health expectations uh, is fine but but generally speaking leaning into plant based diets avoiding heavily processed foods um, are the key factors in um, you know in, in trying to uh, underpin your your nutritional lifestyle um with, with something that's likely to be quite healthy for you nailed it love it eat more plants irrespective of anything else love it <laughs> just got backed yeah. by researchers as well yes win um mate that's that's epic so let's touch base about precision nutrition i really want to lean into this now mate and we will definitely touch base on a bit of the performance side of things as well mate can you give us a quick little rundown precision nutrition go <laughs> yeah so um, okay now, now i'm on the spot so um this, i want to start with the sort of the umbrella term which is called yes. precision medicine yes um and within within that con that concept which has been around 
you know, I think, you know, President Obama popularized that back in 2015 with, with the U.S. Precision Medicines Initiative. You could go back a few years earlier, but essentially this concept's been around for about you know, rough, roughly a decade or so. Um, and within that, you have, um, there's a lot of stuff on, on pharmacotherapy, on drugs, drug medicines. So, um, you know, that, that's, that's one area of it. Um, and there's a lot of stuff on diagnoses. Like, can we, you know, type 2 diabetes is actually often referred to, <laughs> fondly referred to as a trash can definition because it's a terribly poorly defined disease, even though it's the main type of diabetes. About 90% of people who have diabetes have type 2 diabetes, this adult uh, onset diabetes, but it's really poorly diagnosed. And so there's an area called precision diagnostics, which is really trying to, to go into the details about what, what, what type of type 2 diabetes someone has. But then you have this, this area of precision prevention. And precision prevention is really about two things. One is risk factor avoidance. So what are the, for you, um, perhaps not as an individual, but as, as a subgroup of a population, um, what are the types of risk factors that are particularly harmful to you? Um, and that, you know, there are people who have what's called partial familial lipodystrophies, which is a genetic uh, disease that means that they don't store fat properly in their body. And so for them, uh, avoiding um, saturated fats is really, really important if they want to maintain good uh, cholesterol levels in their blood. Um, but, but we all have um, some risk factors that we will be more susceptible to than other people. So that's that's risk factor avoidance. And then the other side of it is, you know, what are the things that will work particularly well to help us? You know, if we if we if we consume or we do, what are the things that will work particularly well for us to prevent disease? So risk factor avoidance and preventive behaviours and actions, and that's really at the sort of heart of this concept of precision prevention. Of course, diet. Um, you know, I I, I I I I hesitate to sort of say that you know you you should separate diet from exercise from sleep uh from mental well-being because actually they're they all go together right i mean uh you if you sleep poorly you eat worse um you, you consume different types of food um and and exercise affects your your appetite too so so and, and of course the food that you eat um facilitates your ability to exercise and to some extent to sleep so so these things tend to go together and collectively they affect the mental health and the mental well-being and if you're in a good mental state you tend to make better choices so so i really wouldn't try to tease those apart too much but on the other hand um, if you do look at them individually there are components of those pillars of a healthy lifestyle that that will work differently for some people than for others and and that you know that that's where we start talking about precision nutrition Sorry, mate. My uh, my thing cut out then. So I had you right up to that point. So I just get uh, time. Trying this down now for editing. Forty-one, five, three, two, one. Yeah, mate. It's unbelievable. I think the the fact that you cover in this this realm, particularly the umbrella term of medicine, like you guys go through, and you look at the key factors around. I think I wouldn't just say nutrition in general, but I would say. Um, optimized performance <laughs> because for me I actually start everything now with sleep right and I know we've talked about this before it's like an element to it all but without that your brain's not functioning properly without that your hormones are not functioning properly your gut's not working so then the food doesn't work and then you move on to food and it's just like all of a sudden in the right you know it's just one thing leads to another mate so 
I like, I always kick things off now whenever I speak to someone and before they even talk to me, I'm like, uh, let's talk to me about your sleep. How effective is your sleep going? Um, and then, then we can move on to these realms of food and other lifestyle choices, movement and as such. But it's an interesting world, mate. It's a really interesting world, but it's really cool to be involved in a space where I, I continue to see more research correctly done and performed and people like yourself, to be honest, to be leading the way for it to be, to be caring, mate. So what's, um, What's something that in our eyes we see, like we, I know we've got this, the sleep studies coming out. Can we talk about that at all, mate, or do you have to wait till it's being officially published? Is that the rule? I, I don't even know what the rule is with publications. Right. If, if, if it's just between you and me, let's have a bit of a chat about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can talk about it. We can talk about it. I love that. Did everyone get that? That is called cheeky British banter. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> so good. <laughs> Mate, so this study, you know, that was my segue into it. What's uh, what is the study that you've been a part of? Yeah, so so we um, we've just pulled off this epic uh, sleep study. So so um, you know, I, I mentioned that it's really hard to to measure diet um, carefully and, and accurately. It's actually quite hard to measure sleep well too. And so a lot of the, the sort of epidemiological studies on sleep, uh, they ask people to record, record when they went to bed, when they got up and how well they slept. And that, you know, like, like your diet, it's, it's kind of hard to get that right. You know, you, um, you don't always remember when you woke up in the night and went back to sleep again, these kind of things. So, um, so the studies that do use objective measures, use monitors and, and other technologies, they tend to be really small, you know, maybe most of them are somewhere between sort of 10 and, and maybe 80 individuals maximum and often are performed in uh, inpatient uh, settings where you have clinical research facilities. So we just did a study uh, with a thousand people. So uh, tenfold uh, the largest existing studies. And we did, we did this study, this is again, part of uh, Zoe's uh, health science initiative. And what we did was we we put uh, we put accelerometers on our participants, and these are movement sensors that basically measure um, sort of gravitational uh, movement. So, how much you roll around in bed, and if you get up, how you know, how much do you move? So, it assesses how much you move. Um, at the same time, we put continuous glucose monitors on our participants. These are, are small electrodes that measure the uh, what's called interstitial fluid or the fluid just beneath the skin and from that predict uh, what your blood glucose level is so we, we, we measure the blood glucose objectively using these, these cgm these continuous glucose monitors and the next morning after after we'd done these measurements we then gave our participants uh, different breakfast meals over a two-week period so they got lots of different types of breakfast meals and once we collected all of the states from in, in, in a thousand uh, in, in a thousand people, um, I think we I think it was eight thousand breakfasts that they they got in total. So on average, eight eight different breakfasts. Um, what we then did was look to see how different features of your sleep then affect your blood glucose the next morning when you eat breakfast. And so what we found, and this is this is coming out uh, beginning of December, new paper. Um, what, what we found is that there are really two key elements that really impact your blood glucose, your blood sugar levels um, when you eat breakfast the next day. The first one of those, and perhaps unsurprisingly, is how fragmented your sleep is. So if you have a high quality sleep or you have a poor quality sleep, then it's the poor quality sleep that really uh, messes with your, your blood sugar control when you eat breakfast the next morning. The other feature um, is something called sleep midpoint. And what that means is that, um, you know, if I go to bed at 10 o'clock at night, and I wake up at six o'clock in the morning, 
my midpoint halfway through the night is, t- is 2 a.m., right? Um, so the later your sleep midpoint, uh, the worse your blood glucose will be uh, when you have breakfast the next morning. So in other words, going to bed a bit earlier and getting up a bit earlier is better than going to bed later and, going, and getting up later. Now, this is true on average. So if you look at these thousand people overall as a population, um, these um, what I've just described plays out. But really interestingly, um, it also matters in, as an individual. And this is where the sort of personalized medicine part comes in. So if I normally go to bed at 10, normally get up at six, um, but I happen to go out on the town uh, on a Friday night and I don't get to bed until 1 a.m. and my midpoint is now pushed back to three or four o'clock in the morning, that has a detectable impact on my blood sugar the next morning. Um, So so it's not just what we normally do, it's it's how these uh, occasional uh, binge behaviors, how that then impacts our blood glucose. Now, of course, it's not just by going out and partying. People have other reasons why they have disturbed sleep. It could be they have small children or they fly transatlantic or they do shift work or they have other health problems like sleep apnea where they don't, can't breathe properly in the night and so they wake up. But all of these things that disturb sleep are likely to have the same sort of impact on blood sugar levels. Another study was published uh, a week ago, in fact, a very large study um, that used these, these sort of more basic measurements that I mentioned at the beginning. Um, that showed actually uh, similar sort of features of sleep also affects your probability of dying from cardiovascular disease. So it's a really serious issue. It's not only that it messes with your blood sugar control, it also affects your cardiovascular health to the point where um, people who tend to have disturbed sleep uh, die prematurely of cardiovascular disease. So it's a serious thing, sleep. And that's that. so that's what our study showed. Um, it's really a mechanistic study, so very large mechanistic study, sheds more light on some of these details. Um, and and I, I should say one other part of this is that, you know, I mentioned that, that our participants got different types of breakfast. It turns out that really um, sugary, uh, particularly liquid sugar breakfast and, and energy drinks would fall into that category. Um, are particularly bad. Um, and so the one thing you should not do if you have a really lousy night's sleep is reach for an energy drink. That, that would be a bad idea. Uh, you know, so, so go for a, um, a more wholesome breakfast, you know, more fibrous, uh, more complex carbohydrate and more protein-based breakfast. Definitely stay away from these sugary energy, energy-based drinks. Just interested to know, just to double down that for a second, mate, is would you – in, in the research, was there anything between I, – I haven't asked you this, but interested, is it actually better to not eat? Like is it better to fast if you have a bad sleep? Do you know anything about that? Just a curious question. I know it's not uh, something we talked about previously, but just out of interest, do you know? Yeah, I, I, I don't have a, a sort of qualified uh, response to that. Yeah, but, sure. I, but but my, my instinct is that, um, you know, the thing with, with fasting, I mean, uh, of course, some people – um, are very good at fasting. Um, other people are, are terrible at fasting. Um, and when if you have a bad night's sleep, it, even for somebody who's good at fasting, will we'll find it harder to do that. And that's mainly because you have uh, various hormones and peptides uh, that influence your sense of hunger and satiety and things like that, and, and your craving for certain types of food. So um, it, it's harder to fast when you've had a lousy night's sleep. Um, and, and because of that, it may be that you're more likely to catch up later in the day. <laughs> you know, So even if you manage to fast for a few hours, you're going to eat at some point and it may be that you overcompensate when you eat. I don't know, but that would be my... That would be my guess. Um, so I'm not sure. Uh, it's an interesting question. I, I'm sure that study is begging to be done. So um, 
Yeah, no, it was just pure because the idea that, uh, well, as you said, like, you know, we, we, we tend just to our hormone will play and how, um, you know, our, our satiety hormones are affected, you would assume you're instigated to eat more. So I'm saying if you, uh, my, my, my theory, not that I'm a researcher or anything like that is that if we fasted afterwards, maybe it'd prevent us from consuming too much food because our, our hormonal, um, you know, I guess balances of our eating or suppressing our eating, um, you know, how, how full or hungry we are would, would not be working as efficiently. So by eliminating food in general for a little bit, maybe that could help. But that was my, that was my reasoning. But anyway, I digress. Just, this is, this is where about this, this show, mate, that I have little tidbits of selfish interest. And so I like, oh, that's a question I really want to ask. I'm just going to ask it. So that's generally what happens. So, mate, this study will come out um, very shortly. I'm really looking forward to diving into it myself. Uh, but this is something obviously part of the pillars of, of precision nutrition and obviously precision medicine in general, um, you know, which again, tie back into the work that you do with uh, diabetes and things like that. And we've had some amazing researchers in the world of, of diabetes come in here. Um, I've had, you know, team shares eye on, um, they're unbelievable. Um, and then even, you know, the, the, the folks from mastering diabetes, uh, you know, Cyrus and Robbie, and it's pretty. It's really cool to see that, you know, what was previously mentioned as like an uncontrollable, untreatable situation is now like we're finding methods upon ways to slowly, as you said, get, get around it. I've just, you know, in my research of your work, you've done a lot of work in that space as well. And we talk about type three diabetes being Alzheimer's, um, you know, specifically. And you know, that is something that. I think there's a lot of fear. I speak to a lot of people about that space in general um, because like it's, it's something like the unknown, like the unknown of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and, and in that realm and in that space is unknown. But what we, what we do know is that, you know, if you look for prevention rather than cure, you're on a better track to success, right? And it is unfortunate. It like it is it is something that runs in the family, isn't it? The gene. It is it is is it a gene that um is is actually was it an unfortunate situation with genes that is transferred? Yeah, absolutely. So apoE, um, which is actually a the, the interesting thing with with a lot of these diseases is that some of the some of the genetic causes um, are, are what's called in, in the business of genetics pleiotropic, which means that they um, they affect different phenotypes, so it's different essentially different diseases, um, and 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 it isn't in in many cases understood why that is. It's just that there's something that that gene produces that means that it plays out in different ways to have different effects on on the body. Um, now, Alzheimer's, you called it type 3 diabetes, which um, is an interesting uh, terminology for it. Um, it's certainly true that the one, one, of, well, you know, one of the tragedies with Alzheimer's is there is no way to, you know, once somebody's developed Alzheimer's, you can't, you can't disrupt the disease process. It will continue. You can mask uh, some of the symptoms of the disease, but, but it, it will continue on its track. So, so prevention is absolutely better than than uh, intervening later with Alzheimer's, even more so than with diabetes. Um, but interestingly, the risk factors uh, for Alzheimer's are very similar to diabetes. A lot of the lifestyle choices um, or uh, life, lifestyle impositions, let's put it that way, because they're not always choices, um, that affect diabetes also affect Alzheimer's. And although and I'm not an Alzheimer's researcher, so I should be careful how far I get into this, but, but it would make sense 
that if the risk factors uh, for Alzheimer's and type 2 diabetes are the same, and we already know that intervening on those risk factors can delay the onset of diabetes, one would presume, and maybe there are trials that have shown this, I don't know, um, that intervening on those risk factors would also delay and possibly prevent Alzheimer's. So, so it's definitely uh, it's definitely in the same ballpark, and it comes back to what we discussed a while back in this in this podcast, which is you know why why is exercise and diet medicine well it's 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 medicinal because it has this ubiquitous beneficial impact uh, on our organism on our bodies, um, and and so you know you do something that helps uh, prevent diabetes, you're also going to help prevent other diseases like Alzheimer's, which uh, many of the drugs. That, that help with diabetes will have no beneficial impact. <laughs> so, so it's a very strong argument for lifestyle as medicine uh, beyond pharmacotherapy. Man, absolutely. And uh, the idea behind, um, you know, medicine in general is something that, like, I'm just so interested to see if there's ways that we can completely eradicate that from our thought process. Like, that, I mean, that's, I guess, I guess it's uh, something that you're continuing to work towards in your preventative measures, right? As opposed to having to find somebody to cure with. But um, yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's it's a slow it's a slow pace, I guess, in terms of how long. Actually, how long does it take? This this study you've just done from the the, the sleep. I mean, we've noted this. Obviously, the longer the study, the more you probably could be consistent around, particularly in the nutritional space. How um, you know accurate, not accurate, but realistic it can be. But how long does a study like this take to kind of get from ideation into publication yeah no well um it depends whether you're working purely in academia or you're working with a startup like Zoe, to be honest. <laughs> so, 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 so so one of the, the i mean I, it's the first time i've worked with a startup i i've you know worked for, for you know consulted obviously for other companies but usually the really big companies the thing with zoe which i i was actually super skeptical at the beginning when uh, when tim specter um, who's who's this, you know, the sort of head scientist with zoe approached me and tim's now, Tim's one of the most famous scientists in the world, so he has he has a really good track record, very famous uh, researcher. But when he approached me and he told me he'd met these these guys, Jonathan Wolf and, and and his colleague, I I, I was like, yeah, I'm not really. I, I I don't, you know, to be honest, nutrition companies don't have a great track record. But he said, mm. yeah, come on, you, why don't you meet with us, have lunch with us, and we're going to tell you what we're going what we're planning to do. And and what what they said is, and this is back in summer of 2017, thing. And they said, look, you know, we really want to take a science based approach to this. We know that that's not in vogue when you're trying to develop products quickly, but we want to take a science based approach. And we think, and they, you know, these guys had fantastic track records in uh, in other types of industry. They said, you know, we think um, that we're going to be able to raise a lot of capital to do this, and they did. They raised tons of money to do this. It's, you know, it was really uh, well pitched and and well received by venture capitalists. So they raised a ton of money, and um, we did these studies. I mean, so much faster than you would be able to do in the acad- purely academic world. Um, both in terms of raising the funding, you know, grant funding cycles, it usually takes a year from when you start to write a grant to when you get funded, and you'll probably have to write a whole bunch of grant applications to get enough money to do something like this. So it could take a couple of years to get the funding together. They got the funding together in weeks. So so that was the first thing. They really were able to get the, the money together. And then they just wanted everything done yesterday. I remember being really kind of irritated by this at the beginning. Like, Christ, you know, like I've got I've got, you know, I've got my day job as well, right? I can't, can't spend all my time on this. But they were able to 
to pull this, you know, basically get get all the sort of infrastructure around it necessary. Um, and then ultimately, and this is, you know, I consulted on the design of the trials with, with others, a couple of other scientists. But um, essentially, this was all run out of King's College London. So they, you know, it's done within the context of the academic infrastructure there. I think we, from from the ideation to when we actually had, uh, you know, really good clinical trial results was less than a year. And that is, I mean, I've never heard of that before. Um, and, and especially as this is this is the largest, most detailed precision health study that's ever been done. So it was really incredible. Um, so it meant that we could then get the results out really quickly. And that, you know, for these issues, and these are really burning issues, right? There's so many people who are struggling with their health because of poor diet, um, and, and you know, dysmetabolism, whether energy metabolism has gone wrong. It's just so important to get this work done quickly. And, and the work was, you know, was really well received. It ended up getting published in Nature Medicine, two papers in Nature Medicine, one in Nature Metabolism, and many other papers published in top clinical journals. So, so it, you know, it was really hardcore, really credible science on a topic that's super important, which unfortunately is often... Uh, not well underpinned by by really you know good evidence. So so it was a really thrilling experience, and I, I you know all credit to the, the team at Zoe. They put together a fantastic data analyst team. Um, all, all the sort of you know the backroom stuff that's necessary to pull off these clinical trials quickly. Um, they worked with the, the team at King's College London that Tim leads, and it was a wonderful experience. And it's ongoing. I mean, they're, they're, they're you know, continuing to build these studies. So so fantastic experience. Yeah, I'm uh, a big fan of the team at Zoe finding ways to be, you know, these programs to be specific for the individual. It's um, an exciting thing to be a part of. And obviously having yourself involved only adds extra credibility. I mean, you've gone from being someone who's uh, running half marathons in, at early teenage years. Uh, was it teenage years or was it 21? When was your first one? I forgot. No, I was right. I did my first Ironman at 21. But yeah, I've done, I done, <laughs> done a lot wow. of other stuff before Wow, that's incredible. I mean, you've done that. And then I'm assuming like, did that actually just, I didn't, we didn't get the backstory, mate. Is that actually what got you into it? You're like, oh, I'm just interested to hear how my energy systems work. So the, the physio, obviously that's what works with your, uh, you know, when you when you were studying at Brunel, is that what the the physiology yeah, aspect got involved I, with? There was more it came with. No, I, I think it was that I, uh, I mean, I was doing, you know, I, I'd sort of got into triathlon uh, in my mid-teens and, and um, and started doing some of the um, longer distance triathlons, not not Ironman distance until I was 21, but I'd done some like half Ironman in, in my teens. And, um, you know, in in, uh, in professional cycling, there's a term called uh, getting the knock or bonking, uh, which is basically when you completely deplete your body of energy and you have this sort of neurological crash where you get tunnel vision and ringing your ears and this kind of stuff. And I'd done that so many times when I've been doing these ultra events in my teens. And it's, it's one of the most miserable <laughs> experiences you can have when, when you, when you completely hit the wall. Um, but it, interestingly, when someone puts a, a can of Coke in your hand or, or gives you a slice of orange, it's the most magical uh, thing, you know? Um, so, so I'd done that so many times, you know, um, in, in training and in, in competition. And so I, I just got, you know, naturally interested in you know, how do you avoid that kind of crashing uh, energy crashing during events so that was really my you know the, the reason i got interested at the outset was really just trying to understand the physiology behind nutrition in, in ultra sports um but but as i said that that then sort of matured into a recognition that you know 
um, that's fine and interesting, but but perhaps my my calling was a little bit more for public health and, and uh, look, looking at the diseases that are caused when metabolism goes wrong. Well, yeah, and then it's that's what's that's a whole other topic, isn't it? Like I feel we've only just kind of teased the surface on that one. I mean, talking about things like um, key factors that we can see early on in the age that would lead specifically to diabetes and maybe even obesity as well. These are, these are I don't know, are we, are, talking back again when you're referring to seeing your kids do things and you're like, ooh, these are factors that I've done research over and I'm just not exactly happy about it. So like, but at the same time, you've got to be a parent um, and, and a loving dad at that. So, I mean, I'm, I'll, we'll leave that for another time. I feel like that would be a whole whole episode of how to be a parent in the world of a researcher trying to help <laughs> yeah. me applied, applied everything. So, but um, Professor Paul, mate, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you today on the show. I uh, really appreciate your time. And as always, uh, mate, a couple of UK, uh, you know, legends and, and Australians always get together, happy to banter. But, um, mate, really enjoyed the discussion today. And if anyone wants to, you know, learn more about you, where can they, uh, where can they, you know, catch up with you? Where's the best place to get in contact? Yeah, I mean, to be boring, LinkedIn, uh, to be honest, is, is, <laughs> is what, I, what I use most these days. <laughs> it's a good it's platform. Like, it's, it's not bad for science communication, actually. So you can find me on LinkedIn, but uh, I'm on Twitter and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm around and about. Can I just say, I, you know, one, one of the things that I, I always uh, that really inspires me is when I when I interact with people who are really good public health communicators, but are not uh, are not trained in public health and not scientists. And so, I want, you know, congratulations to you for doing a fantastic job with that. Such an important thing. And, uh, you do it really well so fantastic oh thanks mate i appreciate it yeah it's i mean I, i'm very interested in my my life of health and performance so you know get to hang out with people like yourself is actually uh, a blessing for me so it's uh it's always it's always good we get to enjoy what you do and hang out with people so no i appreciate it mate and everyone listening in obviously we'll be um you know sending links to respective channels of linkedin uh even where you can read more about professor paul himself and i don't think this will be the last time paul will be on the channel particularly given some of the research he's putting out there that i know everyone else is interested in so professor paul once again thank you for being a part of the epic tale podcast nice one mate